Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Dr. Chris Seaman and part of his presentation, The Beginning of the Good News, a study on the Gospel of Mark, part of the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy. Today's show is titled, Beginning the Gospel, Part 2, recorded in February 2013. And now, Dr. Chris Seaman. So, let's try to draw these three scenarios, these three images together, and try to figure out what is the basic essence of Mark's story of Jesus that, we're gonna, that he's going to tell us. Because if we get the basic essence down, we'll be able to fit pretty much everything that happens into this template. Israel, God, God is, is leading Israel for the first time, having created Israel as a nation. He's leading them th- by a messenger to get to the land that he's promised them. That's the Exodus twenty three twenty part. He is leading them back to the land with a new exodus out of exile. That's Isaiah 40, verse 3. Or they're already in the land, having been restored to it, but things are not going so well, so God is sending his own messenger to go to the temple and appear suddenly there and refine the priesthood. Those are the three scenarios that hearers of Mark's gospel who knew anything about the Old Testament would have been hearing when Mark says, this is just what the good news is about. So what are the common elements of these three Um, songs, as it were, these three soundtracks. Well, you could put it this way. There is a messenger in each of them. There is a journey to be undertaken from point A to point B through a wilderness. And third, there is the destination, which is either the promised land itself or more specifically, the temple in Jerusalem. Now, why would that, why is the temple so significant in terms of the symbolism of the Old Testament. Well, after God demonstrated his sovereignty by defeating an enemy king and leading his people safely to the land, eventually a king came along, King David, and said, God really needs a palace of his own. He's the king after all. So David promises to build God a palace, that is to say, a temple. The temple is the architectural sign, the visible sacrament, if you will, of God's kingdom, God's presence in the world, God's power. As long as the temple stands, it is a sign of God's kingship, his rulership over Israel and the world itself. Now, jump back to what I was just saying about the historical context of Mark. What just happened in Mark's time, that sacrament, that sign, that fundamental symbol of God's power, his sovereignty, was eradicated. The Romans raised the temple. Uh, they, they massacred thousands, tens of thousands of Jews. They raised the temple. They demolished the sign of God's sovereignty. And all those coins that you sent to the temple to show your allegiance to God are now going to go to our God. Mark says, I'm going to tell you a story about good news, about a king. So the messenger, the journey or the way, and then the destination. This is Mark's plot. We can divide Mark's gospel into three parts, actually, rather like Julius Caesar dividing Gaul into three parts. Right? And the, you remember from Latin classes, if you ever took those, um, the three parts of Mark's gospel are chapters one through the beginning of chapter eight. And that has to do primarily with the messenger preparing for his journey 
by gathering his people in the wilderness. The first eight chapters, basically, of Mark's gospel are about the messenger gathering his people in the wilderness, preparing for this journey. The middle part of Mark's gospel, which is also in chapter 8, chapter 8 through 10, is the journey from point A to point B. The final third of the story begins in chapter uh, chapter 11 and ends at the beginning of chapter 16. That's the end of Mark's gospel. That is the destination, Jerusalem. Everything in those chapters happens in Jerusalem. Now, if you just want to put it geographically, you begin with Galilee, which is the geographical context of Jesus performing the role of this messenger, gathering his people in a wilderness. Now, if you've ever been to Galilee or have seen pictures of it, it doesn't look like a wilderness. It's not a desert at all. It's lush. It's inhabited. But at two key moments near the end of this part one of the story, Jesus is hanging out, gathering crowds around him to feed them. And he says to his followers, go feed them. And they say, how can we feed them? This is a wilderness. This place is a wilderness. Well, what they mean is no one's living around here. We can't go to buy food at a nearby store at Fisher's, right? But um, Jesus is saying, don't worry. We're in the wilderness. This is where we're supposed to be. In other words, the term wilderness is used not as a physical descriptor of a landscape, but as a symbolic space that they are now in. It's a story space they're now in. The story of the messenger preparing for the journey to the destination, that's the first third of Mark. Then we have, that's in Galilee, then we have the journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, which is the destination. That's basically what Mark says the story's about. Now again, the purpose of this journey is could either be to establish the people in its land, restore the people to its land, or refine the priesthood in the temple, or it might be all three of those things. We'll see that there are elements of those soundtracks all throughout Mark's gospel. But if we get this, if we just if we if we just keep in our minds this is the background for everything we're going to read, We'll, we'll be hearing echoes of that soundtrack at various points in the story. And if we don't hear them, I'll try to point them out so that it has a kind of coherence to it. Okay, so those are our Star Wars words that are going across the screen. The, the words are now gone. They, they evaporate into space, right? We're at the end of verse 3. 20 minutes left to do the other, the other <laughs> verses. But it's important to have done that. If we don't get through the, all 15 verses, we'll, we'll review it more at the beginning of next week. Okay, so the story now begins. The story begins. It begins in the wilderness. And gosh, there's a person who appears in the wilderness who proclaims a message, just like in Isaiah. It's not Jesus, right? Of course, it's John the Baptist. But again, the story begins right where the plot line said it would begin, in the wilderness, with a voice crying out. Now, John the Baptist is an interesting character in Mark's gospel, Mark uh, has him wearing someone else's clothes, or perhaps they're not someone else's clothes. They have him we- he has him wearing Elijah's clothes. John is, is clad in camel's hair and has a leather belt. That's exactly the description of the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament. Now, Elijah, uh, he has a role to play not just in the past, but in the future. Because he's one of the only two characters in the Old Testament who didn't die. He was taken up into heaven in a, uh, in, in, with these fiery chariots. So he, he was taken up to heaven so that God could send him back whenever he needed a messenger. 
And if you read the book of 2 Kings, where this taking up into heaven takes place, it happens right on the east bank of the Jordan River near Jericho. And guess where John appears on the east bank of the Jordan River near Jericho. We don't get all those geographical details yet, but he's, in, he's at the Jordan. He appears right where Elijah disappeared. Now, if I asked you who is John the Baptist, you'd probably say uh, Jesus' cousin, right? Because our basic understanding of the gospel is Luke and Matthew and John. And in Luke, he is given a genealogy and is identified as Jesus' cousin. Fine, but that's not Mark's story. Uh, for Mark... John is implicitly the prophet Elijah. Implicitly, I mean, because it's not stated exactly so. If you want to hear Jesus' own opinion on this, read, uh, read Matthew's gospel where he says, if you're willing to accept it, he really is Elijah, believe me. Uh, but anyway, uh, Luke softens this to say, well, he's not literally Elijah, but he has the role of Elijah. But what is the role of Elijah? The role of the prophet Elijah, according to the book of Malachi, that same book that was part of our soundtrack, only now we're looking at a different verse of it, the very end of that of the book of the prophet Malachi, God says, I'm sending the prophet Elijah to, uh, to basically bring you to repentance so that I don't have to come and pass a negative judgment on you and your land. I'm going to send the prophet Elijah to remind you about my will. That's what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to turn the hearts of parents to their children and children to their parents. The verb to turn is actually the same verb in Mark's gospel, to repent. And this is John's message, repent. Uh, he calls on people to repent of their sins. He calls upon Israel to repent of its sins. And all the Jews of Judea and Jerusalem, everyone without, without exception, according to the author, of course, we will later know that that's not quite right. There are some people who don't listen to him. But we're told the whole nation responds by coming to the Jordan River, the east bank of the Jordan. Now, that is symbolic because the Jordan River, the East Bank, is where the Exodus ended. The Exodus begins at, a, at crossing a water, and it ends with crossing a water. It begins at the Red Sea, where God first manifests his sovereignty to the world, and Israel owns God as their king, and it ends with Israel being brought to the East Bank of the River Jordan, Moses saying, uh, goodbye, have a nice time, I hope you do well, I'm going to go die now, and then Joshua uh, leads them through the waters miraculously, just like Moses did at the beginning, and they enter the promised land, then they proceed to settle and conquer it. Um, so there's significance to where John is calling people to repentance. He's calling Israel back to its point of origin, right, as it were. And the, the sign of repentance is this ritual of immersion in water, immerging them in the very water through which their ancestors passed to become the fulfilled people of God in, in their own land. The symbolism of it is very clear. It's about the exodus. Okay, so John is doing this and he says, oh, by the way, someone else is coming too after me. Okay, so we know that he's the messenger preparing the way for someone else. Uh, is it God? Probably not because he says, I'm gonna, I can't untie his sandal. Does God wear sandals? Probably not. Uh, so someone else is coming, a mystery man. And then along comes Jesus, sort of like Clint Eastwood in High Plains Drifter. He comes from Galilee a long ways off. He's the only Galilean in Mark's gospel who responds to John's call to repentance. He comes as the man who no one knows, and he comes and is baptized by John. 
So he, he aligns himself with John's message, which, with John's message that we are, re, we are restoring our nation. We're, re, re, we're reenacting our history out of repentance for our sins. We're going to restore our relationship with God, all these good things. Jesus agrees with that. But there's a difference. Uh, for which sins was Jesus being baptized? For no sins. Uh, his baptism, whether he knew it or not, was for a different purpose. As he comes up out of the water, he sees, he sees, no one else sees in Mark. This is a private vision of Jesus himself. He sees the heavens torn in two, a violent image of rupturing. The heavens are ruptured and a, the spirit descends upon him. The Holy Spirit descends upon him and rests upon him. And then he, Jesus, hears a voice that speaks only to him. This is all a secret that only Jesus and us, the readers, hear. Big deal in Mark's gospel. No one, no human being in Mark's gospel knows truly, fully, who Jesus is until he dies. Peter gets it half right when he says, you're the Messiah, you're the anointed one to be king. Yeah, that's, that's a good start, Peter, but you don't know what Messiah means. You don't know what my task is, says Jesus. So he calls him Satan and tells him to get lost. Uh, but the only person who truly sees who Jesus is, is his executioner at the cross. Seeing how he died, the, the centurion, the man who is allegiant to the Roman emperor, says truly this was God's son. Now, God's son is the title of the Roman emperor to whom the centurion swears his allegiance. He has just changed his allegiance to a new king. But it's only he, he who understands this special revelation that Jesus receives at his baptism. Now, when did Jesus figure out, when did Jesus, when did Jesus' conscious, consciousness of who he was begin? Well, according to Luke, it began, or at least it was present in some form when he was a kid, a whiz kid in the temple where he was teaching everybody, right? That's a story when he's, what, six or seven or eight years old or something like that? Twelve. Twelve, thank you. So he already knows who he is by then. Um, in Matthew, uh, we're not sure uh, exactly because Matthew changes Mark's story of the baptism to be a public declaration to everyone. So it's not necessarily for Jesus himself. But why would God need to tell Jesus this privately if Jesus didn't already know it? So perhaps for Mark, Jesus discovers who he is, who he is called to be at the moment of his baptism. That may be one of the reasons for this. But what does the divine voice say? You are my son, my beloved, and you I am well pleased. Again, this could be a bit disorienting for a human being. Jesus was fully human like all of us. He can be disoriented by things, but he has a clear view. He responds fully to God. Um, but what is God saying to him? You are my son sounds like Psalm 2 from the Old Testament. Psalm 2 is the coronation hymn for the king, the anointed king, the Messiah. In Psalm 2, when the new king comes to exercise, to begin to exercise his rule, the decree of God is, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's the soundtrack in the back of that part of the, the divine saying. You are my son. That is to say, I have just appointed you to be the ruler of Israel. I've appointed you to be a ruler. 
but you're also my beloved son. Well, where does that come from? Well, we would say it comes from John's gospel, but John's gospel doesn't exist yet, folks. Okay, this is Mark. He's the first. So where does the beloved son come from the Old Testament? Well, there are several beloved sons, but the most important one is in Genesis 22, Isaac, the son whom God commands Abraham to sacrifice. So Jesus is a king whom God is going to sacrifice or allow to be sacrificed? Yikes. This is new. This is something new, okay? But you are also the one in whom I am well pleased. Well, that's a quote from 2nd Isaiah, from that, uh, that 15-chapter uh, passage, chapters 40 to 55, which Mark quoted the beginning of in his plot summary. Who is the, uh, the person in whom God is well pleased in this 15-chapter homily? It's Israel, his people, the one... The, the, it is Jacob, my people, who I'm taking out of exile, bringing them back, restoring them to their land, restoring them to covenant relationship with me. So we put these three things together. Jesus is appointed to be a king. He's appointed to die as a sacrifice. And he's also identified with Israel, the one in, who, the, the, the one in whom I am pleased. Uh, so <coughs> Jesus is what we would call his vocation, his role, embraces all three of these things, the specific role of the king to rule on God's behalf, but he also embraces the entire vocation of Israel as the people in whom God is well pleased, and uh, he is also going to die as a sacrifice. Mark doesn't dwell a lot on the, on the, on the meaning, the significance. I mean, he doesn't spell out a theology of why, of why Jesus, why it's necessary for the Son of Man to die. Um, as we move through Mark's gospel, we'll see some, again, soundtracks that he alludes to when he talks about that, but we really don't have a developed uh, teaching about this in Mark. It's just simply part of the assumed story. So this is how the gospel begins. Jesus is commissioned to be king, to be Israel. And so just as Israel has to be tested to see whether it's up to snuff, so Jesus is going to be tested to see whether he's ready. So He's cast out by the spirit that is now inhabiting him into the wilderness. Now, he's already in the wilderness. Which wilderness is he cast into? Well, if he's on the east side of the Jordan and he's been <clears throat> baptized, maybe he was catapulted out of the Jordan River into the West Bank. Maybe. Um, and so he is uh, in the wilderness for 40 days, tested by the devil, uh, who is God's uh, agent for testing people to see if they are ready for what they have been assigned. And Jesus apparently passes the test. We're not told what the test was. Later on in Mark's gospel, there may be an answer to that, but since we're low on time, I'm going to save that uh, for, for later on. Uh, so Jesus is identified by God, perhaps for the first time to himself, and he's immediately put to the test, and he hangs out in the wilderness until something happens. He's not just waiting for 40 days to be over like us. He is waiting for something to happen. And the something that happens is the arrest of John the Baptist, the silencing of the messenger. <clears throat> so we heard that there was going to be a messenger preparing the way for someone else. And in the first few verses of the gospel, it seems as though John is the messenger preparing the way for Jesus, as indeed he is. But now the messenger has been silenced. His mission has been aborted, terminated. We're not, and, and then very mysteriously, because 
We were told just a few minutes ago that everyone loved him, that everyone responded positively to him. So something is rotten in Denmark. You know, there is something amiss. There is an opponent, an adversary, and it's not the devil. There's a human adversary who puts him in jail. Now, this is part of the expected plot of Mark's story because Mark's story is about the Exodus, right? Well, what is the story of the Exodus? It is about a king who resists another king's will. It is about Pharaoh who resists God's will. So God has to, uh, has to overcome Pharaoh's resistance and deliver his people anyway. Well, we all know who it will be, but let's leave it as a secret for now. The point is that the, 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 the mission that God wants to accomplish has just ended in failure, or at least not complete success. And it's at this very moment when the messenger is silenced that Jesus becomes the messenger. He goes forth into Galilee and he proclaims the good news. He went forth proclaiming the good news of God, which the of can mean either from God or about God. But here's what it is. The kingdom of God has drawn near. The kingdom of God, meaning God's sovereignty, God's royal power over the world, over Israel, has drawn near. It's about to, it's been in abeyance maybe, it's not so visible, but now it's going to be made visible and concrete and effective. It has drawn near. Repent. And believe in the good news that I've just told you. Believe in believe that the kingdom of God has drawn near. Now, okay, um, well, repent. We can probably understand that. He's carrying on John's message of repentance uh, to purify Israel, to restore Israel to its proper relationship to God. But believe in the good news? Well, what does that mean? Um, after all, Jesus is going to demonstrate the nearness of the kingdom not just by telling people about it, he's going to show it to them in acts of power. So they're not hard to believe, actually. Belief, though, has to do with loyalty as well. This is the, we, we tend to think of, of the, the word for belief, either meaning a cognitive belief or a trust in something. But the third meaning, the one that's actually most prominent in the, the secular literature of the day, except at least for... Um, at least for the context of kingdom, is a declaration of allegiance. The, the, a, there's about, a regime change is about to take place, which is what, what good news is usually about, if you don't like the regime. Right? A regime change is about to take place. Declare your allegiance. Show us where you stand on this. Now, guess who the opponents of Jesus are going to be? They're ultimately going to be linked in one way or another not all of them, but, but the, the most important ones will be linked to the person who, who silences the first messenger, right? which will be Herod. We'll learn about him later. Now, Herod Antipas, the ruler of Jesus' homeland, was not a king. That was not his title. But Mark calls him a king to make it clear that there is going to be an opposition between God's kingship and Antipas's kingship. Just like in the Exodus, which is a contest between two kings, there's going to be a contest between the existing regime and the new regime. And guess who's, want to get, who's, who's going to want to avoid the new regime from coming about? Those invested in the existing regime. Jesus will face the same situation in Jerusalem on the other end of his journey. 
The kingdom of God is about warfare, conflict, opposition, and overcoming the opposition. But the key thing here, wow, we're actually doing good on this. The key thing, let's, let's take this all in now. This is the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the one who was appointed. This beginning is just like Isaiah said it would be. A messenger is preparing a way, a journey. He's going to go on this journey and he's going to end up in Jerusalem. John the Baptist appears as a messenger figure. He prepares the way for Jesus to be revealed to himself, who he is, and to us, the readers. Jesus is tested as a messenger. And then as soon as the first messenger is silenced, Jesus picks up the baton and carries on the message. That's the gospel, says Mark. That's the beginning of the gospel. Now, beginning can, you know, does the, is the beginning just those 15 verses? Or perhaps is the beginning the entire gospel? Does the beginning end in chapter 1, verse 15, or does it end in chapter 6, verse 16, verse 8? Uh, very likely both and. Okay, already we've seen that the messenger is not an individual, it's not a sole individual, it's a role that different individuals take up. There are three primary messengers. Well, there's more than three, but there's three that frame the whole story, the whole plot. There's John, there's Jesus, and guess what? Jesus is going to be silenced too, eventually. Just as John is handed over, that's the verb that's used when, for the arrest. When he is handed over, he is effectively silenced. When Jesus is handed over and silenced, therefore, in terms of his message, guess what? Another messenger is going to appear out of nowhere, just like John appeared out of nowhere. And Jesus appeared out of nowhere. Um, a messenger follows a messenger follows a messenger. And uh, that's the basic structure, the basic plot of Mark. And we're going to keep our eyes out for messengers in Mark. A lot of people will play this role partially or wholly. But we have to see this as a succession. Because the reason why I have to understand it as a succession is because the, ch the, the relay race ends with us. The relay race ends with us. It began with John the Baptist. Jesus continued it. Someone else picked it up after Jesus. And that someone is going to hand it, the baton, to us at the end of the gospel. So we need to understand what the role of the messenger is if we want to understand what it means to be a disciple. It means to be a messenger of the kingdom. And I think I'll end there. So thank you. For more information about the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy, log on to walsh.edu. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For an audio archive of this program, go to livingbreadradio.com and click on the programming menu. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio presents.